I've had the privilege over the past many years to do premarital counseling with a number of couples, some from right here at College Church. And this is always a daunting task, of course, because nobody has some secret recipe for a happy, successful marriage, you know? And so every couple requires a bit of creativity and individuality in terms of these formative, preemptive conversations. But there are some practices and some stories that I do tend to share with every couple that I meet with because they just seem universally valuable. One such story is about a couple, an old married couple, who was celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary. And they were sitting in their kitchen on the night of this special occasion. This was actually their practice every night before bed. Uh, he, uh, she would make the tea and he would make the toast. And they would enjoy the snack together while they shared about their days and then spend their last moments of the evening together uh, thanking God for their many blessings. They kept this sacred practice for 50 years of job transitions and child rearing, new homes, illness, loss, the stuff of marriage. This particular night, the couple had a lot to reflect on because uh, family and friends had come from miles away this day to throw them an anniversary party, a celebration of their love and faithfulness to one another for five decades. But with teacups full and steaming there at the table, the mood of the room shifted suddenly when the man placed the plate of toasted bread in front of his wife and she suddenly burst into tears, then audible sobs and remained silent for an uncomfortable amount of time. Completely confused, the man waited till she calmed a bit and then gently asked her, what was the matter? And with a sudden turn from despair to downright frustration, his wife answered, for 50 years, I have walked beside you in this life. I have given you my everything and done my very best to love you and serve you in every way possible. And for 50 years, without fail, you have given me the heel of the loaf of bread week after week at this table. The man was stunned. He sheepishly retracted the plate of bread and then quietly responded, the heel is the most wonderful part of the loaf for me. And for these 50 years, I simply wanted you to have nothing but the very best. Now I'll let you draw whatever conclusions you would like about this parable related to marriage, but there's nothing worse than a misunderstood gift, is there? Sometimes I wonder if this is how Jesus feels about the gift of the Holy Spirit. Earlier, we heard Luke's account from the book of Acts, where following Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, some of his most loyal followers were gathered together in Jerusalem. This was not coincidence, nor a fluke. They were likely there for the celebration of Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks, otherwise known as Pentecost. So yes, Pentecost was actually and originally an Old Testament celebration, commemorating the giving of the law at Mount Sinai to the people of Israel back in the day of Moses. The word Pentecost means 50th, noting that this occasion was celebrated on the 50th day following Passover, which is why Luke tells us on the 
on the day of Pentecost, the believers were gathered together in one place. That's from Acts chapter two. It was this tremendous time of gathering together and remembering in the life of Israel. And Old Testament Pentecost specifically was an agricultural celebration where people would offer the first fruits of their harvest to God and in so doing bore witness to the fact that they believed the whole of their fields, all of their crops belonged to Yahweh. And as a testament to the spirit of gratitude and dedication, people would annually make an often lengthy pilgrimage from their homes to the holy city so that they could be there and together celebrate. What's amazing to me about the particular Pentecost that Luke is writing about in the book of Acts is that even amidst what had to be a lot of confusion and uncertainty about what was gonna happen now that Jesus was gone, these 120 or so believers continued on with their normal faithful practices of remembering God's story, remembering God's activity throughout their history of leading and guiding and acting on their behalf. They didn't know what was gonna happen now. Heavens, they had just seen their rabbi executed, then resurrected, and eventually taken up into the heavens, enveloped by a cloud, and suddenly vanished from their sight. But they continued on with what they had always done. They went back to their faithful rituals and routines, in spite of their wondering, in spite of their waiting, and I'm sure in spite of being a bit apprehensive about what was gonna happen now. It's probably an understatement. It was no coincidence then that God utilized this moment, this gathering of the faithful to deliver the gift that Jesus had promised to his followers many times in his preparation to leave the earth, this gift of the Holy Spirit. Now I should be clear, uh, the Holy Spirit is not a New Testament invention. Right? Sometimes I think we uh, mistakenly imagine this particular Pentecost that Luke writes of as the birthday of the Holy Spirit. But from the earliest movements of God recorded in Genesis and throughout the Old Testament narrative, we read of references to ruah, which is Hebrew for God's breath or wind, the spirit of God at work among creation. And yet in Jesus' farewell discourse in chapters 14, 15, and 16 of John's gospel, we read that Jesus was preparing his followers for a new understanding and a new kind of engagement with the Spirit of God. He told them that the Father would give them another, an advocate, one who would never leave them, one who would lead them into all truth, one that would not just live with them, but who would live in them. He told them that this advocate would teach them everything they didn't yet know or understand and would remind them, long after he was gone, of things he'd been saying to them all along as he walked beside them on the earth. He mentioned what I'm sure had to be a, a, a dark and difficult thing for the disciples to process, that it was actually gonna be better for them once he was gone because it wasn't until Jesus would leave that this advocate could arrive and empower and equip them to do even yet greater things than they had seen or experienced. And he said that this gift would serve as a voice of correction and conscience, 
so that their ways might align with the ways of God, the ways of the kingdom, and so that those in the world would know the difference between the two. When the spirit of truth comes, Jesus said, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. He will bring me glory by telling you whatever he has received from me. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said, the Spirit will tell you whatever he receives from me. It's funny to me how much detail Jesus gave about the gift of the Holy Spirit, and yet how much confusion and misunderstanding the church had, and frankly still has today, about this gift from God. Just two years ago, that's 2021, George Barner reported that 60% of the American church, so six out of 10 American-going Christians, American church-going Christians, I should say, reported that they don't believe there's any such thing as the Holy Spirit. That, that, That they think this is just a symbol of God's presence or power in our midst. So if that's true, it's probably not unfounded to state that while we are somewhat comfortable with the roles of the Father and the Son in our understanding of the triune God, the Spirit, not so clear. And again, there's little worse than a misunderstood gift, is there? So in an attempt to more fully engage and embrace the Holy Spirit on this Pentecost Sunday, I've been thinking about and trying to confront a few of our most common misunderstandings about this gift. And I wonder if you've run into or wrestled with any of these yourself. For starters, I think we far too often think of the Holy Spirit as coming and going, coming and going. I mean, our patterns and habits of prayer alone kind of betray us in this realm because we so often plead with God and ask him to send the Holy Spirit to be with us, to come into our midst. Everybody take a deep breath because what I'm not saying here is that there's anything wrong with asking God to attune our hearts and our minds in new and fresh and heightened ways to the presence of the Holy Spirit. Goodness, I hope this is our prayer and petition on the regular But any sense we have of needing to to plead with God or, or to beg God to make the Holy Spirit present with us to summon God into our midst, number one, I think way overestimates our control over the Almighty. And number two, ignores Jesus's words that the advocate, the, the parakletos, which is the word in the Greek meaning the one called beside, will never leave. That's what Jesus promised. This was a part of what was so defining about the coming of the Holy Spirit that Luke was describing in the book of Acts. Because prior to this, the Spirit of God did seem kind of transitory in the Old Testament. He he gave certain kings, certain warriors, and prophets and judges supernatural insights or power in particular seasons and in particular situations. But here in Acts, just as Jesus promised, the Holy Spirit was given once and for all, this permanent companion who would constantly abide. This should produce an amazing amount of confidence for us as Christ followers, friends. 
We have been given this faithful, constant, forever partner in whatever God calls us to. One who will never leave us nor forsake us. One that we don't need to beg or plead to be with us or attempt to woo into our situation, but one who is already here, already attentive and always by our side. So when we sing, come Holy Spirit, or when we pray, fill us, Spirit of God, these are not wrong petitions. These are prayers of posture, prayers of surrendering and an opening of ourselves in ever-increasing ways to the work, the Spirit who is already here, already in our midst, always present and ever accessible to us is doing. This is Jesus's gift to us already given. And I don't know about you, but I feel and I behave very, very differently when I know I'm not alone. When I know I have the support and the fortification of authority and someone who is ultimately in my corner by my side. And so I wonder what challenges of this life or what callings of God we might engage with greater confidence and courage if we truly understood this constant companionship that we enjoy in the gift of the Holy Spirit that is ours. Secondly, I fear we often misunderstand the gift of the Holy Spirit as a gift only manifested in the spectacular only in the supernatural or in miracles or mysterious manners that have immediate and wide-sweeping impact. I completely get where this misunderstanding comes from because we just heard about the Holy Spirit coming upon those gathered together in the first century with hurricane-force winds and the equivalent of a pretty great fireworks display that suddenly allowed people to speak in languages they didn't previously know. And if we keep progressing through the book of Acts, this all builds right? We read about healings and exorcisms and all sorts of spectacular ways that God showed up in unexplainable manifestations through ordinary people who had been filled with this Holy Spirit. So why wouldn't this be our expectation of the Spirit's movement among us today? Well, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would teach and remind and guide. This might be a little bit more ordinary attributes, Certainly the spirit can show up in whatever way he, he chooses. And sometimes the Holy Spirit does show up in miracles and mysteries. But I wonder if the manifestations of this gift of God are far more, fa far more often found in whispers than whirlwinds, in quiet moments where we are still before God and postured in such a way where the Holy Spirit nudges and guides and inclines. I confess I find it far easier to know and feel confident in the Spirit's leading when all I have to do is wait for the show or the spectacle, when it's all about the fire and the wind, because these manifestations of the Spirit are pretty hard to miss. But when pausing and positioning myself to wait and really listen for the Spirit's leading as necessary, this is where I so often fail. And this is where I uh, often miss so much of what I think the Spirit has to offer us. What would it look like 
if we anticipated not only the miraculous movements of the Holy Spirit, but we regularly made time and space to encounter the still, small voice of the Spirit in everyday, ordinary moments and experiences. Third, I think we often misunderstand the Holy Spirit as a consolation prize for Jesus being taken to heaven. When I, when I was a kid, I used to watch game shows with my grandmother when she would come to visit. And I remember one night uh, at the end of, I don't know if it was Wheel of Fortune or Pyramid or what it was, but we got to the end of the show and I heard the host bid farewell to one of the players who had lost. But in doing so, the announcer mentioned that this guy who'd lost was leaving with this whole laundry list of items of prizes, things like a new vacuum cleaner, a treadmill, a custom line of pots and pans. And I couldn't figure this out because I'm thinking, he lost. Why is he getting all this stuff? And my grandmother went on to explain the concept of a parting gift to me, that in order to compensate this contestant for his time and effort, and likely to encourage other people to want to play, even though they all couldn't win, they'd send these people off with a bunch of loot. Now, it was never as good as what the winner would go away with, but hopefully it kept them interested in still liking the show. Sometimes I feel like this is how we view the Holy Spirit. We ascribe or limit his role to that of comforter or one will, who will appease us or console us until our Jesus returns. Please hear me out again. I've already said that part of the role of the Holy Spirit is to be an encouragement to us. He never leaves our side. This is a soothing part of the Holy Spirit's gift. But remember, Jesus told his disciples that it was actually better for them, better for them that he leave. Because in so doing, then the Holy Spirit could come. Jesus knew that he was limited by his physical body, that he could only be in one place at a time. But in his leaving the earth, the Spirit could come and dwell in each of Jesus' followers, animating them and making possible in them everything that Jesus did while he was on earth. This is the beauty of multiplication at work. It means that as I, who have received the gift of the Holy Spirit, share the good news of Christ with others, they too can receive this gift. So I become a part of furthering the reach of the Spirit and ultimately extending the kingdom of God exponentially. And so I wonder, what if we all recognize the fullness of the gift of the Spirit in ourselves and in one another, and in so doing, realize what God is making possible by bestowing upon us this remarkable power and influence intended to extend Jesus's mission on earth. How would we live differently with that understanding of this gift that we have been given? You know, I got to this point of preparing this message and I, I got a little nervous that I might have stepped on some toes. And about that time, I started thinking that another misunderstanding we often have of the gift of the Holy Spirit is that he's always nice. <laughs> Let's face it, few of us have ever prayed, come Holy Spirit, move in me. And what we really meant was, Lord, please come and point out all of my flaws and devastate everything I am comfortable with in this life. 
Truly, I think more often uh, we imagine the work of the Spirit looking more like Wesley's heart being strangely warmed than the ruinous work of God's conviction being unleashed in us. But both are true of the Spirit's nature, Jesus tells us. He promised an advocate who would counsel, one who would direct towards righteousness, away from sin and the things in us that would separate us from the nature of God, and one who would always advise us towards alignment with Christ. So when we receive the Holy Spirit as Christ followers, we not only receive a companion and a teacher and an empowerer and a comforter, we also receive a convictor, one who will point out our sin and the impulses and the attitudes in us that are not like those of Jesus Christ. This is perhaps more the functional part of the gift than fun. Because this word in the Greek that we translate to convict in English actually means to refute, to find fault, to reprehend severely, or to call to account. This is not passive, friends. It means sometimes those nudges of the Spirit might feel like a mighty blow. Sometimes those whispers like wallops and while this can be hard to swallow, I will domesticate and shortchange the gift of the Holy Spirit in my life terribly if I limit his influence to only creating feelings of joy and ecstasy, warm fuzzies, if you will. If I recognize and relent to his voice only in the hyped up highlight real moments of my life and forget that his ability to correct and redirect is also to my benefit. The Spirit's conviction is what keeps us in alignment with the priorities and the person of Jesus Christ. And so the question is, how might we be more fully formed and truly made into the likeness of Christ if we receive not only the encouragement of the Spirit, but also his correction and conviction? If we actually prayed for that and welcomed this part of the gift into our lives. For the sake of time, I want to mention just one other misunderstanding of the Holy Spirit that I think severely impacts our ability to fully receive all God intends for us in this gift. And that's that I think we've misunderstood this so often to be an individualized gift. Think about it. Even if we have wrestled and redirected so many of the misunderstandings I've already pointed out here, that we have prayed and yielded ourselves to the Holy Spirit's ability to teach and empower and sanctify and guide, the reality is we still fall prey to our environment. And so as Western American evangelical Christians, we can tend to make this gift largely about our personal relationships with Jesus Christ. But it's kind of hard to ignore the fact that Luke tells us that this gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out upon a community of believers. What's more, we have to keep reading and realize that then this group of believers who had received this gift immediately was empowered to go and share and to testify with still a larger group, extending this gift to still others who came into a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, again, I'm not saying there's no personal aspect to the Holy Spirit. Just a couple decades after all of this, the Apostle Paul would write about the gifts of the Spirit and talk about how these various gifts were appointed to various people for various reasons in the mission fields where he was serving. But those gifts which emerged from this promised gift of the Holy Spirit are all aimed toward one ultimate end, testifying to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and making him known. Not to the end that I am more holy or to the end that you are a better Christian, but to the end that the Godhead is worshiped and glorified. This is why Jesus told his disciples before the ascension that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came and that they would be his witnesses, telling people wherever they went in the world, all over the world, about him and of God's saving deeds and covenant-keeping ways. So when I make the Holy Spirit only about myself, I truncate, I, I, I inhibit the impact Jesus intended this gift to have when I don't fan the flame of the Spirit in you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, when I don't assist you and encourage you to listen for the Spirit's voice of instruction and correction, encouragement and peace, I limit the reach of the Holy Spirit and the ability to share him with those you're gonna encounter and interact with in the week to come. When we, as a church, hoard the gift of the Holy Spirit, fixating on increasing his power in our lives and in our church without recognizing that this is a gift intended to be freely and generously shared with others in our attitudes, in our words, in our deeds. We limit the offering of praise and worship that is postured to and ultimately received by God. Church, there is little worse than a misunderstood gift. But when we truly understand the gift we have been given in the Holy Spirit, and then when we truly employ this gift that we have been given, we unleash the power of God in this world. This is the hope and the calling of Pentecost, church. This is why today is such a big deal. In our Christian tradition, Pentecost is the final Sunday in the season of Easter. It's, it's the Sunday nearest to the 50th day following the resurrection. It's this culminating event of the season where we have celebrated the triumph, victory, and lordship of Jesus Christ. And we have this day where just as Jesus promised, we remembered that we have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so my prayer today is not that we only have a fuller understanding of what we have been given in this gift, but that as a body, we truly express through our lives the knowledge and, and embodiment of what this gift makes possible in us. And that in so doing, we offer praise to God and a recommitment of ourselves to be sharers of this gift in the places and the spaces that we will inhabit in the week ahead. May we, the people of God, steward this amazing gift that we have received faithfully and well to the praise and glory of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Will you stand and sing the amen with us this morning?